Welcome to our show, Get Real Local in the Tennessee River Valley. I'm your host, Joe Harper. Every show, we will be talking with local people about the best places and things to do in the Tennessee Valley. Pull up a chair and explore more with us as we get real local. Today, we are welcoming back repeat guest and local historian, Joseph Gamble, state park ranger at Fort Loudon State Park. During a previous podcast with Joseph, we talked about the history of the Tennessee Valley's exploration and the growing expansion of pioneer settlements on the frontier. Welcome back, Joseph. Happy to be here. Great. It's exciting to have you. Joseph, the frontier explorations and competitive commerce between Indian nations and uh, European nations of France and Britain ultimately created political unrest and conflict. Tell us about the role of Fort Loudon during this time. Right. So so Fort Loudon, um, it was a British fort. It was constructed in 1756, and it lasted for about four years. And to, to sort of explain, uh, it's kind of a weird convoluted story as to exactly how it gets to be there. To, to back up a little bit, the French and Indian War, as we know it, begins in 1754 when uh, – a young 21-year-old uh, Virginian by the name of George Washington um, accidentally causes an international incident when he uh, he and some of his soldiers attacked uh, a French diplomat in the wilds of Pennsylvania and killed him. And uh, this, and this is the simplistic version, but basically this led to, you know— uh, opening of hostilities between Britain and France. You know, the two nations obviously had fought wars with each other for centuries. You know, you think of the Hundred Years' War, you know, multiple wars in the 1500s, 1600s, on and on. This is just a continuation of that. Several wars had already been fought, particularly in the colonies between the British and the French over control of different territories and whatnot. But this one really was the the be-all to end-all. And when it breaks out, there is everyone basically continues uh, the way they always had. Both sides are using militias and the big thing, whatever Native American allies they had at their uh, at their behest, so to speak. So from the time of earliest European settlement in North America, when, when, when Europeans arrive, various Native American tribes simply view them as just new kids on the block, new kids who happen to have slightly more advanced technology. But they use these Europeans in many ways to, to – to their own end. You know, many of the native tribes and powers had their own rivalries, their own politics. They'd fought with each other over land resources, um, you know, old old scores to settle, that sort of thing. So when this war breaks out, these Native American tribes, of course, are picking sides. Many of these tribes, as the name French and Indian War suggests, the natives allied themselves with the French. Many of them had lived close with the French, that sort of thing. In the southeast, arguably the single most powerful tribe at this time was the Cherokee Nation. The Cherokee, because of their power, had long been rivals with the Creek, the Shawnee, uh, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, various other tribes. Those were tribes who had allied with the French. So when war breaks out, those tribes once again reaffirm their alliance. The Cherokee don't want to be allied with the French because then they will have to be allied with their old rivals. So they go and gravitate to the British. This has been the way since the early 18th century, and the French Indian War was a continuation. However, when this war breaks out, they realize something. The last time they sent warriors to go off and fight on the British behalf against the French, particularly up north, it left the homeland, what they refer to as the Overhill Towns, modern-day Tennessee Valley, 
open to attack from the French coming up from Alabama along with their Creek allies. And so these Cherokee um, headmen, uh, chief among them, Atacolacola, he wasn't, I say chief as in the head, he was he was their head diplomat, one of their big speakers, but he wasn't necessarily over the entire tribe. Um, they basically go to the British and say, look, we're happy to, to fight alongside our brothers the English, but is there any way that you can guarantee the safety of our homeland while the warriors are away. And this alliance between the British and the French is considered so important that the governor of South Carolina is ordered to send a full company of British regulars to march over the mountains 500 miles into the homeland of the Cherokee country and build a fort on what's now what was known as the Little Tennessee River in the heart of the Cherokee country, literally three miles from the Cherokee capital of, of Chota to guard the river and be a place of refuge, guard the Cherokee homeland as as a sign of good faith. This is this is a very expensive uh, um, endeavor uh, and not one that's taken lightly. And, and there was no other native uh, tribe that the British really did that to and had such a good relationship with as that. So there's, there's a lot of political machinations that are all going on here to lead to simply the building of this palisade fort in the middle of middle of the Cherokee country. Wow, and that's why the Fort Loudon was built? Yes, sir. And uh, the outcome of the war? So, well, obviously, we're, we're not speaking French. Uh, well, I do from time to time. But uh, the war, of course, would, would end in Britain's favor. Uh, Canada would fall, uh, as would Louisiana. Uh, all uh, France lost all of their territories, of course, by 1763. The war's over. One interesting little tidbit, though, as you'll note, the fort was only there till 1760. The reason being is relations wind up breaking down between the British and their Cherokee allies in the midst of this ongoing war. So literally a war within a war. And it's not really because of the fault of uh, the folks at Fort Loudon who were generally doing their best to keep diplomatic relations up, but... Um, Really what it boils down to, there's there's specific events that would take me a long time to go into, but the, the simple gist of it, and you see this throughout European and native relations, is you have two vastly different cultures with two very different ideas of what is legal, what is right, what is justice, what uh, what should be done, and how things should be addressed, and you have spokesmen for those cultures on either side that are unwilling to 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 give ground neither side in that time uh and place were willing to to work with the other and it got to where nothing could be done and they came to blows uh, and of course the poor folks of fort loudon when war was declared basically by the cherokee in january of 1760 they now find themselves stuck 500 miles deep in enemy territory and the cherokee besieged the fort starved them out uh and the garrison was forced to surrender in august of 1760 it was the first time an all european military force was taken by an all native force very interesting. And uh, Fort Loudon is now a state park. Uh, what should visitors expect when they visit the park? Yes, sir. So, so uh, we're open every day of the year, uh, year-round. Um, if you go to Fort Loudon State Park, which is located in Vonor, Tennessee, uh, we're on the island there just off of Highway 360 and uh, not far from Highway 411. Um, basically, you go, we have a museum. Uh, the park was established in the mid-'70s. 
partly as a way to preserve it from the floodwaters of uh, Tillico Lake when the dam was built in 1979. Um, the fort was excavated archaeologically throughout the 1970s, and then the site, field dirt was brought in and raised up 17 feet to preserve it. After that was done, starting in the early 1980s, they began reconstruction of the fort, which is almost entirely finished. So if you go now, you can see a museum, which includes many of those uh, uh, archaeological artifacts that were found uh, from the side of the fort. Many give very interesting insights into what life was like, but also unique stories. Uh, there's a fantastic film that was produced locally here in Knoxville back in 2012 on the history of the fort. Um and if you walk about 200 yards past the museum is the reconstructed fort itself with palisade walls, barracks, everything. And you're welcome to walk through and tour at your own leisure throughout the summer and most of the year. There's usually at least one um, living historian down there, park staff, dressed out, talking to folks, answering questions. And about eight times a year, we actually do what we call garrison weekends, reenactments, where we have a large volunteer base and we'll have 20 or 30 soldiers dressed out, drilling, firing the muskets, firing the cannons, women, children, craftsmen, bringing the fort back to life on a regular basis. That would certainly be worth a visit. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And can visit, I heard something about a blockhouse at the, in the area. What is that? And uh, can visitors see it when they visit the park? Yes, sir. So, so at Fort Loudon State Park, actually, uh, we're, we're rare in that we encompass actually two forts from two different eras. So Fort Loudon, like I mentioned, was from the French and Indian War. So 1756, 1760 was the years of the fort. After the Cherokee took over the fort in 1760, the fort was burnt to the ground. This remained Cherokee country, of course, on through till after the American Revolution. Well, after the American Revolution, you have um, increased settlement in this area. You know, the British are no longer keeping people from settling west of the Appalachian Mountains. The U.S. government uh, doesn't have the money to pay pensions, and so they give people land grants. Uh, these Revolutionary War vets and their families are now moving over to take hold of this land. And two things start happening. One, they're moving on to land that was previously considered native property and and through various treaties you know this land is taken and moved on to uh, sometimes they don't have trouble sometimes they do but a lot of them are very nervous so we're talking the late 1780s early 1790s so before Tennessee is truly a state and what happens is you get lots of these uh, often they're referred to as stations they're basically privately built, forts where someone would have enough money and they would have a bit of land and they would get together with their neighbors and they would build some form of, you know, a quote, fortified structure, maybe a palisade or a blockhouse, which a blockhouse is, it looks sort of like a, like a short squat tower. Basically, the idea was you would build one of these like off to the side of your home and it wasn't really designed to be lived in, but it was a place where, okay, the, the, you know, they would say the Cherokee are attacking everyone to the blockhouse, run in, close the door, go up in the top of the tower where you have rifle slits cut and you can, you know, fire, drive them off and then, and then go back to your house or whatnot. And these would pop up everywhere. Um, little side story. Uh, my family actually comes to East Tennessee in this same way. Josias Gamble, uh, and his brother Moses. Moses was my fifth great grandfather. Josias was given a land grant 
uh, for his service in the Virginia militia in the American Revolution uh, in what's now Blunt County, just behind, not far behind where Heritage High School's football field is. And uh, they came over and uh, Moses built a grist mill on the Little River and Josias and Moses together built what was known as Gamble Station. Uh, the only account really we have of it was an incident in the early 1790s when uh, uh, there was, and this was commonplace, uh, someone uh, spread the rumor that a group of Cherokee had stolen some horses. And, of course, they started getting together the militia to go after them, and they wound up meeting at Gamble Station and getting together to go off and and find some Cherokees to attack. Because a lot of times this was hearsay, and they didn't really have culprits or whatever, and it was an excuse for for, for border violence. Uh, and Governor William Blunt, of course, trying to prevent this from happening, uh, rode all the way uh, from Knoxville to uh, uh, Gamble Station, basically and managed to call these guys down and convince them to go home. But as this sort of leads into my next bit where – these privately owned forts and these settlers come in, that's the big issue is they're facing off against local Cherokees and they're, they're, they occasionally have you know violence where someone would get killed, horses would get stolen, livestock, all these sorts of things. And the U.S. federal government starts to realize that we're creating a problem here. When we keep sending in these settlers and you have this cultural friction, something has to be there to, 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 to temper it. And so you start seeing the establishment of true actual U.S. Army fortifications. The big one in the area was Fort Southwest Point in modern-day Kingston, Tennessee. And it's called Southwest Point because it was quite literally the southwest point of United States property, uh, territory. Um, and it was out of there that they they managed these others. And the one that we have on the park was the Teleco Blockhouse. There were really only there were really two blockhouses there, but it was this Palisade Fort, and it started out as a fort. It was built in 1794, and the idea was again, it's in the heart of the Cherokee country, and it's there to basically keep the peace between white settlers and the local Cherokee. But it also becomes a place for uh, for Cherokee and for settlers to come uh, and sort of air their grievances, if you will. You know, if if a white man accuses a Cherokee of stealing a horse, they're not supposed to, to be a vigilante. They're supposed to go to the U.S. government, complain, whatnot, same way the Cherokee are supposed to go and complain of whites encroaching where they shouldn't be, that sort of thing. Uh, and Fort Southwest Point was the big uh, fortification. The, there was a full uh, squadron of U.S. Dragoons, several troops of the 4th U.S. Sub-Legion, the U.S. Army regular soldiers, and same ones at Teleco Blockhouse. Uh, and they're there to to basically maintain that status quo, but they also are government offices where many of these treaties were signed. So the Treaty of the Holston that was signed in 1791, and then, of course, the Treaty of Teleco, which is a continuation of that, was signed in 1798 at Teleco Blockhouse. Um, and then the final thing with Teleco Blockhouse is it becomes home to a factory, which factory in those days was simply the office of a factor. The idea was the U.S. government begins this idea of assimilation, this idea where Cherokee should be, quote, civilized. Uh, many days we would call this sort of a, a form of cultural genocide where you're basically trying to convince them to l- set aside their culture, language, clothing, ways of 
the Cherokee or whatever their tribe may be and take on that of Western Europeans. And so teaching them European styles of farming, farming in rows, farming cash crops like cotton instead of, you know, uh, just food, uh, teaching them to be blacksmiths, uh, teaching them to read and write, teaching them to, you know, do all these sorts of things. Um, that was that was done at the Teleco Blockhouse, which is part of Fort Loudon State Park. And uh, you mentioned Gamble Station, so you certainly have a connection to the history of the Tennessee Valley, don't you? Yes, sir. <laughs> okay, and you mentioned something else, uh, Southwest Point. I wish I had known a little more about it. Uh, I need to talk to you a little more because uh, I floated the river down through that area when the clinch joined into the Tennessee, and I was not aware that Southwest Point there was so significant in the history of the area. Yes, sir. Well, tell us about Fort Armistead. Is there something unusual about it? So so, so Fort Armistead, um, kind of, well, to sort of piggyback off of what I said with the blockhouse and and factories, starting in the late 18th century, when when settlers start encroaching in on the area, um, it's one of those things where it's not always written down, but it's known in the minds of many of these settlers and in the United States government that even though there's small treaties, there's small land grabs that are being done. The, the end-all idea is, in their mind, we want all of the Native peoples in this region to either assimilate and become U.S. citizens like, you know, like your white settlers or to leave. That is, that is the end-all. It's not always said, but that's, that's where the road is going. Um, you have more and more land grabs, so the Tennessee Valley falls, if you will, to to the U.S. federal government. Tennessee becomes a state in 1796 uh, and begins spreading. Georgia, um, of course, begins encroaching. And the Cherokee get more and more and more um, diminished in terms of their, their land and everything else. <clears throat> and finally, this comes to a head in the 1830s with the passage of the Indian Removal Act, what we know is the beginning of the Trail of Tears. Now, of course, Andrew Jackson gets gets the main burden of, of guilt for this, and I'm not taking that away, but it was something that a great many people agreed on. Very few uh, people that we know of uh, were against it. Uh, two famous among them were, of course, David Crockett and Sam Houston. Sam Houston uh, famously had his falling out with Andrew Jackson because of his disagreement at Sam Houston also from Blount County, from Maryville, uh, had been adopted by the Cherokee, was a great friend of them, and actually left and went west to Oklahoma to live with uh, with Cherokee once they were removed. Davy Crockett was voted out of office because of his opposition uh, to the Indian Removal Act and, of course, went to Texas over this um, in the 1830s. But um, when the official decision is made that basically we're going to round up these Cherokees and force them westward on the Trail of Tears, um, you have to have outposts created as staging areas. Fort Armistead was that. Fort Armistead, uh, uh, located in the Cherokee National Forest, it's uh, it's a site that's owned and protected by the U.S. Forest Service. Um, now, um, in its original iteration, it's set right on the old Unicoi Turnpike, which was the main path through this area over the mountains from North Carolina. And basically every Cherokee person from North Carolina who went on the Trail of Tears uh, was rounded up and passed through Fort Armistead. They, it was a U.S. Army post. The soldiers would gather uh, these Cherokee people and would bring them, would get enough of them together and then send them on west from there. Uh, and there were literally, we don't know exactly where, but there were essentially 
almost like holding pens for, for these Cherokee. As they came, they would be placed and then sent west under under guard. Um, but yes. Very good. Very good. And are there other places nearby that visitors would want to visit to learn more about the Trail of Tears? What other places would they might want to see? So, uh, of course, Sequoia Birthplace. Um, there are a few other local museums that, of course, talk about it. The East Tennessee Historical Museum obviously comes to mind, one of the best museums in all of East Tennessee. Uh, but the big thing with the Trail of Tears um, that you could uh, uh, go to learn, one being Red Clay State Park, which is down in Bradley County. Uh, Red Clay State Park is protected as the last Cherokee council grounds before the removal. And they have a fantastic museum there, and they have uh, wonderful grounds and fantastic park rangers and museum interpreters there to talk about uh, that that pivotal moment in Cherokee uh, um, national history when they were still in their native land and about to be pushed westward. I see. Well, Joseph, thank you again for stopping by and sharing these stories with us today. It's been very informative. I've enjoyed it. I have places to go and see now as a result. Absolutely. Well, Joseph, thank you for sharing that with our listeners today. And I want to thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. If you want to know more about this story or more about the Valley Watershed, visit the website at explorertrv.com. That's explorertrv.com. Join us next time with more local stories from the Valley. A big thank you to our sponsor, Tennessee Valley Authority. If you have a great story and want to learn more, follow us on explorertrv.com. That's explorertrv.com. 